Psalm 130. Out of the depths I cry to you, Lord. Lord, hear my voice. Let your ears be attentive to my cry for mercy. If you, Lord, keep a record of sins, Lord, who could stand? But with you there is forgiveness, so that we can, with reverence, serve you. I wait for the Lord. My whole being waits. And in his word I put my hope. I wait for the Lord. More than watchmen wait for the coming. More than watchmen wait for the coming. Israel, put your hope in the Lord, for with the Lord is unfailing love, and with him is full redemption. He himself will redeem Israel from all their sins. Amen. Thank you. I wonder, has anyone been swimming in the ocean or in a river, and you're walking along, and you put your foot out, and you fall off the ledge or you fall into a hole and all of a sudden there's no bottom underneath and you just have that feeling of water swirling around and the current going and it's scary, isn't it? It's not very nice to be going down in the depths. It's kind of dangerous too, isn't it? Now, maybe you haven't experienced that. I haven't, to be honest, had that literal experience. My sister did. But what about feeling out of depth in your work or feeling out of depth in your studies or in the relationships? What about feeling like you're drowning trying to care for the other people in your life? What about feeling like you're being dragged down but all, all the challenges of life, financial challenges, health challenges, relational challenges? And thinking if something doesn't happen soon, my life is going to be gone. I'll be slipping below the water and washing away. Well, our psalm for the day, Psalm 130, it speaks profoundly into that experience, doesn't it? When the psalmist says, out of the depths I cry to you, Lord. Lord, hear my voice. In our series, Satisfy Us, Pursuing God Through the Psalms, this is the third lament that we have looked at. Well, it actually starts as a lament, but very quickly it moves into a psalm of trust. Psalm 130, it doesn't have a complaint against God like 13 and 10 did that we've looked at over the last two weeks, but it's a cry for help knowing that God is the only one who can rescue. So it's an admission of despair. It finds voice in prayer and it finds renewal in hope. And then Psalm 133 concludes by taking this very, very personal experience and using it to encourage all of the people of God. It's not so much a story of God coming in and answering the cry yet, but it is very much a story of the psalmist being realigned. It's the moment that his failing feet find solid ground on a rock to stand on. So we might think of the psalm beginning with a drowning man. It ends with him sitting securely on a rocky perch and he's calmly waiting for the rescue boat to come along and take him to shore. He's waiting without any doubt at all that he will soon be rescued. And he's not waiting alone. As he's sitting on this rock, he looks out and he sees others who have been shipwrecked and he gives them a shout out. He says, hang in there, guys. Help is on its way. It's a great psalm. One of the aims of this series that we've been going through is to help us be more aware of the contents of what's in the book of Psalms. And many of people have said to me it's been a bit of an eye-opening experience, some of the themes that have come out from the Psalms. 
the riches that are in this book. It truly does speak to every experience that we may have in life in our relationship with God. It's one thing to know what's in the Bible, isn't it? It's another thing to be able to apply it to our lives effectively. If we utilise these psalms, these prayers, they are wonderful ways to equip us to cope when dangers and troubles come along and to help us to grow in our relationship with God. Now, I was thinking about first aid training, OHS plans. We don't do it in the moment of disaster, do we? We do first aid training and um, safety checks routinely so that when emergency comes along, we are prepared to get through with as little harm as possible. It's all very well to have all the safety devices in the world, isn't it? But unless we know where they are and how to use them, they're not going to do us very much good. Right now, Rodney's out on the deck. He's cooking us sausages for lunch today. Can you smell any smoke yet? No? Usually when there's smoke, that's what Rodney looks like when there's a bit of fire. Um, you see when there's smoke, there is fire. And that's always going to be a potential for harm, isn't there? But out there, just a few minutes away from the barbecue, we've got extinguishers, we've got water hydrants, we've got first aid kits, we've got fire blankets. But if Rodney doesn't know where they are and we don't know how to use them, they're not much good, are they? In our lives, there is always potential for the waters to rise, for the fires and the flames to heat up. But God has given us everything that we need to live this life well that he's called us to, regardless of the trials that come along. We have so many resources in Christ and in his word. But if we don't know where they are or how to use them, they're not going to do us a great lot of good, are they? So Psalm 130, I put it to you today, it's a wonderful safety device for us. So we're going to take a closer look in two different ways. We're going to look at the predicament that is in Psalm 130 and then have a look at the pledge of Psalm 130. So some psalms that we read have very explicit little headings that tell us what's going on in the life of the psalmist when he's praying. But not so with Psalm 130. We just get out of the depths. We could waste time wondering well, what these depths looked like, what was going on in his life, but I wonder if you pay attention to how quickly you can identify with that situation out of the depths by thinking, oh, I've been there. Been there? Been where? There's no detail here, is there? The psalmist doesn't go on and on about the specific things that are dragging him down or overwhelming him, but he cries again and again to the Lord. I want you to notice the capitalised Lord there, L-O-R-D. That is Yahweh. That is the personal covenant name of God. These psalms, they all rise from and they rely on covenant relationship with God. For the psalmist, being in relationship with God actually puts them in a bit of a, a tricky spot sometimes. Because on the one hand, there's a whole lot of angst that they might feel when things aren't how they should be, when they're feeling a little bit separated from God. But then on the other hand, they have this unfailing security and trust knowing that God is their way out of trouble. And I wonder if you ever find yourself in that tricky spot as a child of God. You know God and because you know God, there are some things that really stir you up and give you a little bit of angst that don't bother others who don't know God. So sometimes knowing God gives you anxiety inside. But on the other hand, you have that constant knowledge that God is with you. God gives you peace and calm. That is something that those that don't know him ever experience. 
The psalmist in this psalm, he says he wants God's attention and he asks for it more than once. I think that's a little bit strange, don't you? Because in the Psalms, they often say how God is watching, God sees, God's with us wherever we go. And they know that God will answer their cry. But the thing with the Psalms is they never presume God's attention. They never presume or assume on his response. Because the relationship between God and the Psalmist, it's not robotic, it's personal. And I think of an example. Now, my husband, he enjoys a cup of coffee after work. And he knows that I know that he knows that I know that he likes that. But some days, it's not there ready and waiting when he walks in the door. Now, I'll tell you, it's much, much better for our relationship if he asks me for a coffee rather than just assuming I should have had it there ready for him when he walked in the door. So God, he knows what we want. He knows what we need. He often gives it to us in advance before we even ask But it's actually really good for our relationship with God if we do ask him. You know, God loves it when we call out to him. So if you find yourself in a position where you are reluctant to ask God, to talk to God, to pray for yourself, let me encourage you, please don't hold back. He loves to hear you. He loves you to ask him for the things that you need. God, he is the one who created us with the capacity to ask for help. He also created us with a whole lot of warning systems. Warning systems like physical sensation, like emotions, like conscience, that alert us when things are not right in ourselves or in the world around about us. I want you to think of a car. A car that is built with lots of safety checks in it. And when something is wrong, what happens? Lights flash, alarms go off. Think about if you're in hospital and you're hooked up to some machine, a drip or a life-saving machine. Uh, If something goes wrong, what happens? Lights flash, bells, alarms go off. So the same thing should be with us. If something is going wrong, lights need to flash and bells need to go off. But there is one difference. Cars and medical equipment are machines. God didn't create us to be machines. He created us with a dignity of choice. God gave us the privilege to be able to ask him for help or not ask him for help. I was thinking it's pretty demoralising, isn't it, when people thrust help on you? You might have been in the situation where, yes, you were in need, but somebody was giving you help you didn't really want and you found yourself saying, look, if I want it, I'll ask for it. God allows us to ask. And it's a little bit like having a buzzer in your hand for the nurse, isn't it? When you're in trouble, he gives us the privilege and the responsibility to cry out to him. God didn't construct us to be robots and he didn't construct us to just passively receive whatever comes. He created us for relationship with him. And you think about it, if you were drifting along in a leaky lifeboat and there was a flare in it, and you were aware the Coast Guard was there looking for you, you would get that flare out and you would fire it off, wouldn't you? It's your cry for help to be rescued from dangerous waters. So what waters are dangerous? How deep do they need to be dangerous? Do you know a child can drown in one inch of water? But if you're out of your depth, you're out of your depth, aren't you? Does it really matter if it's two metres deep or if the water is over 11 kilometres deep, like the deepest part of the ocean? You're out of your depth if you're out of your depth. Throughout church history, this psalm that we're looking at today, Psalm 130, it's been prayed in times of intense grief. It's a psalm that's included in the liturgy for funerals for babies. 
It's used in pastoral care for parents of stillborns. It's on the walls of the Protestant Church of Reconciliation, which is on the site of a German concentration camp. Places of great, great grief, great depths. But plenty of people today are drowning in the mundane of the ordinary, aren't we? We are dragged under by toxic workplace environments around about us. We find ourselves gulping for air because life is so competitive. We find ourselves overwhelmed by dependence. When we're in the swirling waters like that, we call out to God, will we? Will we ask him to save us or will we just let them roll us around? Can I encourage you today, if you hear this phrase out of the depths and that resonates with you, would you please, please cry out to God today? We get a sense when we read Psalm 130 that there is something this psalmist has done to land him in deep waters. It's in his question, if you, Lord, if you, Lord, kept a record of wrongs, of sins, Lord, who could stand? And the obvious reply to that is, well, no one could, could they? No one, not one, not even me. I cannot stand if you kept a record of wrongs, Lord. So the depths that Psalm 130 talks about, it's more than being swamped by oppression that is coming from elsewhere. This is realising that personally, who I am in myself, what I have done, I am out of my depth. I lack the resources within myself to stand. God, I am crying to you from the depths of my inadequacy. Have you been there? At some point, we are all confronted with the great gulf that's between us and God. There's no doubt it's because of our sin, is it? All have sinned. The things we do that we shouldn't do, the things we don't do that we should do, all have sinned, all have fallen short of the glory of God. But not one of us needs to stay in that fallen heap, do we? Because all are justified freely by his grace through the redemption that came by Jesus Christ. I want you to notice in that verse in Romans 3, 23 and 24, all in two places, all have sinned, all are justified. God loved the whole world that he gave his son so that anyone, nobody's excluded from the offer. God is not willing that any should perish. He takes no pleasure in the death of the wicked. But with sin attached, we know no one can stand in the presence of God, don't we? Yet with him, says Psalm 130, with you is forgiveness, the undeserved gift of the record of our sins being wiped clean. Now, when you're struggling with guilt and you're struggling with shame and when you're gulping for air and when you're close to death, there's actually only one thing that's going to put you in danger of drowning and that is failing to cry out to the Lord because if you cry out to the Lord, he will save you. When you confess your sins, he is always faithful and just to forgive us our sins and to cleanse us from unrighteousness. Jesus died once and for all for our sins. He was raised to life for our justification. These are great verses from scripture, aren't they? They encourage us. Even though we were dead in our sins, not that we were drowning and almost dead, but we were dead in our sins. By grace, through faith, we are saved. We have redemption through the forgiveness of his sins, through his blood, in accordance with the riches of God's grace lavished on us. Not a little bit of grace, grace lavished. 
We cannot out-sin God's grace. We've heard that before, haven't we? Over and over. Paul says as much. He says, where sin increased, grace increases more and more. And it doesn't mean we go on deliberately sinning. No way. Neither does it mean that we'll never sin again. We all do, don't we? Every day, pretty much for me. But we don't stay wallowing in the pit of that, do we? We cry out to God for his forgiveness. We make sure our accounts are short. We make sure our accounts are regularly wiped clean. There is no condemnation for those who are in Christ Jesus. Nothing can separate us from the love of God that is ours in Christ Jesus. Nothing can disqualify you from God hearing your cry. So if you struggle, even though you know you are saved by Jesus Christ, if you still struggle with guilt and with shame, I would encourage you to go home and to read what Paul says in these opening chapters of Ephesians 1 to chapter 3, in in Romans chapter 3 to chapter 8. Find hope in God's word for you today. It's true. You know, it's sometimes said that in the Old Testament, it's all about law and judgment, whereas in the New Testament, it's all about grace. Well, Psalm 130 is one of the many Old Testament passages that is steeped in grace. Martin Luther actually dubbed this a a Pauline psalm because it reminded him so much of the message of grace and the gospel of grace that Paul talks about in his epistles. He saw in Psalm 130 the same unmerited grace and the forgiveness that exists at the very heart of the gospel. In the Old Testament, people knew about their sin, didn't they? And they often knew that because of their sin, they were in absolute dire straits. And the only way out of those dire straits was to call on God. And again and again, he would save them. Other nations around about them, they would look at them using all of their energy, trying to appease the gods, trying to please them, trying to get them to do what they would want, getting some divine intervention by their own efforts, their own work. Israel knew there was no point in that. There is nothing that they could do except fall on the mercy of God. God is the one who washes us from scarlet covered in sins to white as snow. God is the one who takes our sin and removes it away from us as far as the east is from the west. God does not keep a record of wrong against those he has forgiven. With him is forgiveness. Forgiveness. Grounded in the character of God, grounded in his zeal for his glory. That means forgiveness is grounded in God's desire for him to be known for who he truly is. I want to take you back to the wilderness just after Moses receives the Ten Commandments and he comes down off the mountain and he sees the Israelites worshipping a golden calf. Got that picture in your head? And understandably, God's not too happy about that and he's about to wipe the Israelites out and Moses prays, he says, God, God, stop. Please don't destroy them for the sake of who you are, God. Because what will happen is the Egyptians will look at and they'll see that you've brought your people out just to destroy them. They will sneer at you, God. God, for the sake of who you are, would you forgive your people? And forgiveness is always for the sake of who God is. It's not so much about what we have done. But we try and make it about what we've done, don't we? We restrict forgiveness because we deny God access to our guilt. Have a think of what you do when you are faced with guilt. 
Because guilt always creates this hole in our relationship with God. And we sometimes attempt to ignore that hole, don't we? We deny there's an issue. We know I haven't done anything to feel this guilty. I mean, look at all the good things I've done. Why do I need to be guilty about an occasional little slip? Other times, if that approach falls short, we try to bridge the gap. We try to justify ourselves, rationalise our actions. Well, you know, I have every good reason to do that. Why do I need to feel so guilty? Maybe we relativise our guilt. Everyone else does it, you know. Actually, I'm a whole lot better than most people. Do you ever find yourself thinking that? Goodness me. Maybe we do accept our guilt but we think it's too much to bring it to God. We've gone far too far down the wrong track. We don't deserve to be back at God's side. These are all very normal human responses for Christians to feel at times when they are feeling guilty because of sin in their life. But all of these responses fall short of giving God the glory for who God is. It is only when we confess our shortfalls, it's when we confess that we have missed the mark, we confess our sins, that's when we allow God to forgive us. God, hear my cry, I cannot stand. But with you, God, there is forgiveness. Once again, Lord, please show us your glory. Show us who you are. Be merciful to me, a sinner. Forgiveness is sought Forgiveness is given for very good reason. It says it here in the psalm. So that we, with reverence, can serve you. Psalm 24 states very clearly that only those with clean hands and a pure heart can serve the Lord in the house of God. And if you know anything about the book of Leviticus, it lays out very meticulous stipulations, rituals and regulations to ensure that anyone who comes into the presence of God is clean. Not just those who serve, but those who enter. And throughout scripture, the message is very, very clear, isn't it? God cannot tolerate sin. Attempting to stand and to serve the Lord with willful, unconfessed sin in our lives, well, it's a serious matter. It has serious consequences. Do I need to remind you about the sons of Aaron or Ananias and Sapphira? You know, we might get away with our sin for a little while, but it always separates us from God. And the more that we sin, the greater the emptiness inside us becomes. And unless we realise the depth of where we're sinking and we cry out to God to save us, we're in danger of dragging others down with us, aren't we? David's life, his is an example of that. His sins had devastating effects on others. But he also knew it was his relationship with God that had been hurt the most. In Psalm 51, he says, Against you and you alone have I sinned. Back to Psalm 130, with you is forgiveness. And it's not forgive and forget, but forgive and no longer hold against me. God forgives us and we must never, ever forget that. Neither neither can we forget the depths of our sin that we've been forgiven of. I want you to think of the story of the Pharisee and the woman with the alabaster jar. Now, both of these people, the Pharisee and the woman, they had both experienced God's forgiveness in their lives. The problem was that one remembered how much she had been forgiven, the other one forgot about it. 
And it was the memory of her sin that drove her closer to Jesus, that drove her to pouring out her love and her worship for him because that he had forgiven her. And Jesus says, she will not be forgotten. This will not be forgotten. Wherever the gospel is preached throughout the world, people will be reminded of this. This woman's life of sin, the forgiveness, the love in response, her enduring witness, lest we forget. God's people, we've always known him as a forgiving God. But in the Old Testament, and today too, they knew that forgiveness was more than just washing away sins. It meant renewal. It meant restoration. If you have a look in Jeremiah 33, God talks there about forgiving his people. He talks about healing the land. He talks about bringing them peace and abundance. He talks about all of their life being impacted by this forgiveness. And because of that, it brings a deeper reverence for God, both in the people and in those watching around about. Jeremiah 33.9 says that when, when the city is forgiven, it will bring God renown. It will bring joy, praise and honour before all nations on the earth that hear of the good things that God does for this city. And those nations will be in awe. The forgiveness of God rescues us from the depths and it places us firm on the ground to stand, to serve him, and then others will be in awe of him. So that's the predicament that God answers, the pledge of Psalm 130. I wonder if you get the sense when you read this psalm and we hit uh, verse 5 that the psalmist isn't quite home safe and dry. He's not quite feeling renewed and restored just yet. He knows that God is his very present help in times of need, but he waits and his whole being is hoping that what he knows to be true about God will come to pass, for it to become real in his experience. But his distress has sort of lessened a little bit as he waits. He knows God's word. He knows God's track record of faithfulness. So he waits. And it's not the agonised wait of how long, Lord, how long, that we looked at in Psalm 13, but this is a very assured wait. It's like watchmen waiting for the morning. Watchmen looking out into the darkness, watching for the first rays of the dawn to come. And without fail, every day, the sun rises, the wait is over. And with the rising sun, the night watchman is relieved from his post. He has the satisfaction of a job well done, the city has been kept safe, and he goes home to rest. Now, plenty of people take a night shift. Deb's good at night shift, aren't you? Plenty of us have jobs that you are up at night. Sometimes it's in an industry where there's bright lights and activity going on 24-7. Other times on night shift, the lights are dim. The duties are not so strenuous. They're on a lookout, vigilant for things that could go wrong, for threats of danger, and they're ready to deal with problems that can't wait for the morning. But with night shift, there is always a longing for the day shift to arrive. Would you agree, Deb? Yes. And when day shifts arrive, responsibility is handed over and you head home for a good rest. If we were to read the next psalm in the book, number 131, there is another metaphor that's used for waiting. The psalmist says, I have calmed and quieted myself. I'm like a weaned child with its mother. Like a weaned child, I am content. A baby that is not weaned 
in the mother's arms will fuss and demand a feed, whether or not the baby is hungry. But a weaned child in mother's arms snuggles into the arms, breathes deeply and is calm. She knows she's safe. She knows she's content without squirming and demanding. There's a deeper level of trust, a deeper level of maturity in a weaned child. She knows that she is loved. These two psalms give us two beautiful pictures of waiting. Watchmen staying faithful at their task as they wait, knowing with certainty that the morning will come. And weaned children waiting calmly, secure in a loving embrace. So when we're in the depths, when we are crying out to God, it's very rarely an immediate transfer to warmth and comfort. There's usually a time of waiting, isn't there? And Psalm 130 encourages us to hang in there through the dark night, to stay faithful to our calling, even when we feel out of our depth. While we wait for God's hand to lift us up out of the depths, we can calmly trust his loving heart towards us. We wait until God says to us, well done, good and faithful. You made it through the night. Now you can rest. Psalm 130, verse 7, and Psalm 131, verse 3, they say exactly the same thing. They say, Israel, put your hope in the Lord. Both Psalms start with this very personal story, and they finish with an encouragement to all of God's people. So personally, each one of us experience God's love and his redemption. So we tell others so that they can put their trust in God. Because God's love is unfailing. It is unlimited. His redemption is full. It is never, ever lacking. It is never held back. There is no matter how many times we find ourselves in the depths, no matter how many times we cry out to God, his love is always right there for each one of us. We can never fall so very far that he cannot save us. And that's a message that every one of us needs to hear, isn't it? And to remember. Plenty of people in this room here today know the experience of crying out to God for forgiveness. When you've done something and you just think, oh, how could I have ever done that? Knowing God how I know him, knowing things how I know them. How could I have done that, God? And we know what it is to cry out like David and say, God, would you create in me a clean heart? Would you renew a steadfast spirit in me, God? Would you restore to me the joy in my salvation? We've experienced the cleansing. We've experienced the renewal, the restoration. We've experienced forgiveness, love and redemption so that we, like David and like Psalm 130, we can teach others the ways of the Lord so that sinners will turn back to him and they will place their hope in him. Psalm 130, it begins with an individual in the depths. The bottom has fallen out of his world and he cries out to God. And then his prayer concludes with this great hope of the people of God. Full redemption, complete rescue, total renewal. And you know what? That is coming for each one of us who is waiting for him, isn't it? So as you go out today, I encourage you to take Psalm 130 with you. It's a wonderful safety device to have ready in case of emergency. When you stumble into a pit, because invariably we're all good at doing that from time to time, when you feel like you've been tossed overboard into the waves, cry out to God 
wait on him and put your hope in him. He did not bring us this far to take us back again, did he? He lifted us up and he's placed our feet on the rock. And when we slip, he will catch us. When we fall, he won't cast us down because he is ready and he is waiting to save the moment that you cry out to him. When you are waiting for renewal and restoration that's been promised, remember his love because he never, ever forgets you. If you find yourself thinking, maybe he has forgotten me. Maybe I've gone too far. Maybe I've done the wrong thing again. One thing too many. Maybe he's holding my sins against me. Don't forget the price that he has already paid to redeem you. He held nothing back. Remember his great love for you. Remember that Jesus came to die and to purchase your life to forgive you. Remain in his love. When you can't see his hand, trust his heart, because with him is forgiveness, with him is unfailing love, with him is full redemption. Psalm 130 says, who could stand, Lord? You know, we sang the answer earlier in that song. Here in the love of Christ, here in the power of Christ, we stand, don't we? Going to invite the worship team to come back and let's, let's pray together as they come. Lord, we thank you for your word to us. We thank you for these psalms. We thank you that they reach into every experience that we have in our lives. And Lord, we thank you that we, we can identify with this psalm today, out of the depths. We've all been there. Some of us are there right now. And Father, I pray that you would give us the courage to cry out to you when we feel like life is swirling all around about us. We, you would give us the courage, Lord, to open our hearts and to cry to you from the depths of our hearts. God, I know that you are ready and waiting to reach down and lift up anyone who cries to you. So God, right now, if there is someone, anyone in this room who is thinking that they've gone too far, that they are in too deep, Father, speak your words of love to them. Speak your words of encouragement to them right now. There is nothing that can separate them from your love through Christ Jesus. Jesus, you came, you gave your life so that anyone who calls on you could have salvation. You came and you gave everything. Father, I pray that each heart in this room is open and saying, God, I want the everything that you have for me. Lift me up out of the depths. Lift me up out of the miry clay and put my feet on the rock. God, for those of us who are in a wait at the moment, waiting for renewal, waiting for restoration, Father, I pray that you would help us to wait expectantly, to wait faithful in the calling that you've given us, to wait calmly knowing the assurance of your love. God, we thank you that your love never, ever fails us. Help us to remain focused. Remind us that you are active, Lord, that, Lord, you have forgiven us. And, Father, encourage us to share that story with others around about. God, may our witness be bright, may it be attractive, and may others want to know you and cry out to you and know that full redemption in their lives. Jesus, we thank you for who you are, for what you've done. We thank you for your word and your encouragement to us.
And it's in your name that I pray. Amen.